Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Good morning, Feisties, or afternoon or evening, wherever you are. I just recorded an interview and that was very powerful. And I knew I was going to be holding back tears a little bit as I recorded, and that was definitely true. So I wanted to jump on right away and record this intro while it's fresh. The incredible woman I spoke to ran a marathon a day to bring attention to the toxic drug crisis and safe supply. She joined me on her phone from the road in the middle of nowhere in British Columbia as she started a 30-kilometer day of running. Jessica Mikulowski lost her 25-year-old son, Aubrey, to toxic drugs, and her message is clear. We need the drug supply to be safe so people stop dying. The most common cause of death where I live here in British Columbia, between ages of 10 and 59, is toxic drugs. Jessica and I talked about the issue itself and how toxic drugs can affect anyone who uses illicit substances, not just addicts. We talk about the way that our culture tends to blame bad parenting and specifically bad mothering if your child becomes a user. We also talk about using running to deal with grief and the ups and downs of running a marathon every day. This episode is for athletes and change makers alike. I know you will enjoy it. Jessica, good morning. Good morning. Where are you? I'm looking around. There's blue sky behind you. It looks amazing. I'm in Midway, British Columbia. And you're, okay, so you are running a marathon a day. Am I right about this? What day are we in? Well, actually, I was running a marathon today. Now I am merely running 30 kilometers a day. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, so <laughs> so tell, tell us about this whole adventure. And, and what it's for. Yeah, well, I, my, my social media got the, the name Marathon a Day for Safe Supply because uh, last fall, I was running a marathon a day around the Ministry of Health in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, to send a signal to that government that their, their, the policy that they had actually adopted to provide a safer supply of opioids and stimulants to those who need it wasn't actually reaching the people uh, that it was intended to reach. So 
in fact, many people don't know that this current government's policy is to provide safer supply. But um, mm. what I was, yeah, that's surprising, right? Um, yeah, they, I actually they made, didn't know that. Yeah, they made a big announcement back in July of uh, 2021, which was precipitated by COVID, right? So COVID paved the way for a lot of novel approaches to things where we skipped, you know, uh, uh, bureaucracy and said, you know what, we need to do this. And it was, it was, it was realized that COVID was isolating people and that people were dying and we needed novel approaches uh, to, to save people's lives. So they adopted this um, uh, safer supply uh, approach. However, um, despite announcing that it was happening, the rollout happened in only a few pilot programs in a few uh, locations, uh, mostly in uh, bigger cities like Vancouver and Victoria. So people who lived in Duncan or Masset or, or Winlaw or Prince George just simply weren't able to access anything other than the criminalized uh, black market street supply of drugs. And they were dying. So that's why I was running a marathon a day around the Ministry of Health. And, and because my son died last year and I was just... Well, I didn't know what else to do. Uh, I was, it was a form of grieving, I guess. Yeah. So can we, there's so much to unpack there. Um, yeah. So, you know, you have a pretty big why behind what you're doing and the change that you're trying to make. Um, and I do want to talk about your son a little bit. Um, can we take a step back and just, can you just outline from the top, if someone's coming into this um, social problem f f with no not knowing anything. How would you describe to them the challenge with the fentanyl toxicity in in the illicit drugs? Like, how would you describe it from the top? Yeah, well, I guess I would describe it this way. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the people I knew, some of them smoked pot, uh, a few people maybe took cocaine on the weekends, you know, people accessed uh, criminalized or, or illegal drugs and um, a, a lot of them without negative effect. They moved on in their lives and they stopped doing cocaine. Some people, uh, you know, continued, but they didn't have the kind of effects that are currently happening to people. And the reason that people are dying in the opioid crisis is that the criminalized supply of drugs has become increasingly toxic. Uh, and by toxic, I mean that it has substances in it that are synthetic. So whereas in the olden days when people wanted to buy um, heroin, it would be mostly heroin with maybe a little bit of buffer, some kind of cutting agent, baby powder or something. Uh, but as trade lines uh, got more you know, difficult and borders got more difficult, people started synthesizing opioids and stimulants. So you could produce it in Prince George, or you could produce it in Oregon or California. Um, and so these synthetic uh, substances are way more powerful than heroin. So fentanyl is way more powerful than, than heroin. Um, and the people creating them are not, um, they're not very careful. <laughs> they're not scientists per se, and they're not medical professionals. They're, they're not creating these substances to be administered safely. They're just creating them to sell. And so sometimes 
if you think you're buying cocaine, it could actually have traces of fentanyl in it because the person who was, you know, packaging this stuff up had fentanyl on the table previously. And fentanyl is so toxic that even if you have a small amount of it, um, you, you can die. You can overdose and die. So people no longer know what they're taking when they're taking criminalized drugs. Uh, for for instance, I saw a, a report the other day on drug testing, and it was a test of cocaine, and it had zero cocaine in it, and something like forty uh, percent benzodiazepine, right? So, wow, <laughs> which which can also kill you. Yeah. So people just don't know what they're taking anymore. Yeah. So I like the way that you framed that too, just around like you know, your own childhood that how many people do I know who have at least sort of tried cocaine or like just experimented a bit with um, illicit drugs? Um, What is, tell us your son's story. Yeah. I mean, I think my son was, had a fairly typical growing up. We were, you know, we were the kind of the bottom end of middle class. Uh, I was well-educated. Um, and he grew up as a typical kid in British Columbia, I would say. Um, he, I found out he was using drugs when he was 18 or 19. I mean, I knew that he was smoking pot a little bit earlier. And I tried to convince him not to smoke pot. Took away this big bong that I found in his bedroom when he was 16. Um, and, uh, oh, just somebody's signaling to me here. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Hi. Hi, good. Oh, I'm running. Yes, I am. Yeah. Somebody just pulled over and like the like the bus is over here. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. And so he's and like, the, where do I where do I find out information about oh, this? Oh, he wants to support BC? you. Oh that's nice. That's so great. I know. It's mm-hmm. so random out here. We've, we've had a bit of a mixed reception, actually. But uh, so what was I talking about? I was talking about my son. Um, yeah, so he was a typical kid. I found out he was using drugs when he was 18. And I knew he was using meth just from looking at him. He'd lost a whole bunch of weight. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. He had uh, sores on his face, you know, which he said to me, oh, that's acne. But I just knew the look. I was like, whoa. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, how could my normal looking average son just by taking meth for a few weeks have these terrible effects, right? So, so um, yeah. And after a little bit of struggling, I actually moved him to the West Kootenays, mm-hmm. where, which is where I just came from, because I actually thought it would be safer for him there. It was a small town. His dad was there. He had extended family there. I was worried about him being in Victoria. And this was back in 2016 when they had announced, you know, that the toxic drug crisis, this was the first year. And I thought, oh, if he's in the city, for sure, he's going to come across these toxic drugs. And of course, it's ironic that he that he died in a small town. And of course, now we know the this unregulated, unre- you know, toxic drug market is is everywhere. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, following your son's death, I remember you being out he- here in Victoria. You know, doing 
lapse of the, the ministry of health building. You know, there's a couple of mutual friends we have that I know went out and ran with you. You did a marathon a day. Am I right to, I think you mentioned that earlier, just to bring awareness to the issue. Um, what was the response at that time to your efforts? Well, the public response was amazing. I mean, mm. people came out, people walked with me, people who had just seen me in the paper came down and walked laps around the Ministry of Health to support me. And then when I got tendonitis, which of course I would get tendonitis running a marathon a day, they actually started doing the marathon for me. So people just started coming oh, out and wow. doing laps and we had a chart, you know, so it was 72 laps of the building. So people would, some people would do eight and another person would do 14 and someone would do two and they would bring their strollers and their dogs. And it was really cool. Like it, and, and actually a lot of people came out from my sport community, you know, from my triathlon friends and my running friends, and they didn't necessarily know anything about safe supply. They just wanted to support me. And, um, but interestingly, we had the conversations while we were there. And I think, uh, probably a hundred percent of them were able to say later on, Oh yeah, now I understand why she thinks safer supply is a good idea because, you know, on the surface, I, I agree. It doesn't really seem to make sense to give drugs to people who have a drug problem. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. in the beginning, when I first found out my son was using drugs, I wanted him to stop using drugs. <laughs> right. That's what I wanted. And that's what I thought would be the best uh, approach. But now that he has died, I would do anything to have him back. Yeah. And I, and I realized that he never had the time to um, figure things out because he died just, you know, in the prime of his life. Yeah. Um, How old was he when he passed? He was 25. 25. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had just graduated from college with uh, awards. He was in a law and justice program and mm -hmm. interested in restorative justice. And, you know, he was interested in this issue, actually. So it's it's disappointing because, you know, he was supposed to be one of the people fixing this issue, not not dying from it. And, and in your sort of, I have a few, if you see me writing, it's because I'm writing down follow-up questions, but um, I, you know, if you, in your ideal world, what would be the solution to this problem? Yeah. I mean, so again, it doesn't, I, I understand that pe people might be thinking, you know, giving drugs to people who use drugs is a bad idea, but what the idea like in my ideal world, people that are suffering with substance use disorder should not be accessing drugs from the black market. Uh, their thinking is already impaired. They're already vulnerable. They are prone to people taking advantage of them. They are prone to making bad decisions. They are prone to taking risky decisions. And in fact, they need to be connected with more medical and psychosocial services, not fewer. So by uh, offering safer supply to people who are struggling with substance use disorder, we're connecting them with the healthy services of our society, right? So we're connecting them, first of all, to a safe supply of the drug where they know how much they're taking. They know that they're not going to die from the amount that they're 
taking and they can start to make decisions themselves about like, okay, today's Tuesday. I'm going to see my kids later today. Actually, I want to take a little less today. Or, you know, maybe I'm thinking about going to treatment soon. Uh, so I'm going to start to taper down a little bit. Or, you know what? It's the weekend and I, I'm going to take my full dose, right? So allowing people to start make make health, healthy decisions about their life is, uh, well, we want that for all people, right? So right now, people can't make those kind of decisions because they never know the potency they never know the quantity. They never know how strong something is. Mm-hmm. Um, and their lives become really deregulated, right? Um, so, I mean, if someone is really suffering with substance use disorder, having that stability in their lives can allow them to make better choices. And as well, they're in contact with medical professionals. So, you know, that medical professional can say, gee, I also see that you've got a cot on your foot. You know, so the person comes in for safety supply and they're also also seeing the public health nurse or they're also seeing a counselor who says, yeah, I can, uh, you know, hook you up for detox or whatever it is. Right. So we want people connected to society. We don't want them way out there in the hinterland going to people who deal drugs (laughs) to solve their medical problems. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so back to your story, you know, you were, how many marathons did you do around the ministry of health and what was the final kind of like, how did you decide to stop that particular part of your journey? (laughs) (laughs) You could go forever, right? (laughs) I know. Well, you You are an endurance athlete. (laughs) If it wasn't for my, you know, body, I could have gone forever because, you know, in my mind, I would have just kept doing it and doing it. I would, I am fiercely uh, grieving, I suppose, you know, I mean, what does one do when you've lost your only child, you know, to, to something that was preventable, a, a, a preventable death. And then I see all the other kids and people I know who have lost kids. These are all preventable deaths. And it just makes me so angry. So, um, Sorry, what was your original question? That I think I think it was um, how you decided to. I mean, it sounds like you ended up injured and sort of had to sort of take a pause on that part of the journey. I did. I ended up injured, of course. You know that makes sense. Um, I wasn't even trained to run a marathon a day. I don't even know what that training is. I, I googled it naturally, but uh, <laughs> the, the interwebs was a little short on advice for how to how to run a marathon a day. So yeah, I got injured. And also, um, I saw that the media was going to lose um, interest. And, um, and then finally, I did get an audience with the then Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, uh, Sheila Malcolmson, and uh, Public Health uh, Officer uh, Bonnie Henry. So I did have a meeting with them, um, which was disappointing because they basically said to me, we agree with you. We agree with you in principle, but there's nothing we can do. There's nothing more we can do. And they wouldn't explain to me why. And so what I, I don't know, I read through the lines is that somewhere along the chain of commands, there's a lack of political will. So, you know, not everybody's on board, although they are on board. Um, I don't know what it is. And my suspicion 
is that the government doesn't see this as enough of a priority issue to do something that seems contentious. They don't want to, they don't want to lose votes. They don't, you know, they're willing to just keep using a moderate approach, um, which I found really depressing and really, and really sad, you know, uh, this death by toxic drugs is now the leading cause of death in British Columbia in ages 10 to 59. 10. 10. Oh. So our 11-year-olds are more likely to die from toxic drugs and falling off their bikes, you know, or ski accidents or like it's just astounding, right? So so then the next approach, you know, my run across BC, I was actually like, okay, screw you government. I see where you you know, you know what I mean? Like all the data is out there, all the evidence is out there. They even agree. They're just not doing anything about it. So I was like, okay, I'm not talking to you guys anymore. Right. This is actually for the public. This is for the average British Columbian because until we become outraged, they are not going to do anything. Yeah. You know, and as long as there is disinformation and misinformation out there, then we can't be informed. You know, as long as we're making knee-jerk reactions, like, yeah, giving drugs to drug addicts is a bad idea, which, right, I was there at one point, right? But I moved away from that position when I started informing myself, when I started looking at the research out there, when I started looking at the evidence. And the chief coroner of Canada, Lisa Lapointe, fully says safer supply is the only way to preserve life. Right. Like, let's leave the political issues behind the uh, the the B.C. coroner. Uh, same thing. We had a, uh, a legislative standing committee. They came to the same um, same results. So the evidence is there. Uh, but I think people need to go and see it themselves um, and become informed and become outraged and and, and ask for change. Yeah, it's a really interesting moment in just kind of thinking through how our political system works, right? Because you because cultural perception around drug use is definitely influencing what the decision makers are able to do. Would you say that that's true? Yeah. 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 Yep. And how do you think we change that cultural perception and what does it need to change from and to? Um I think that um well we need more education. And the mm-hmm. education, uh, the resources are there. Like a person can go to the BC Center for Disease Control. A person can go, uh, they have a, a website online with, a, I think it's called a toxic drug dashboard or something. They've got all the data up there. It's very compelling. Uh, the BC coroner releases stats, I believe, quarterly, uh, you know, just kind of giving... Um, data about who what when why where right and this is in itself is is compelling and and looking at their suggestions um and i also think that stigma still plays a role which is you know which is why i kind of um which is why i i wrote that article about the bad enough mother because i think that in our culture uh there's a cultural piece to this where we still blame uh, a person's home environment. We still say, ah, well, this only happens to bad families, right? Uh, and usually bad families comes from bad mothering, right? So 
And then, you know, um, like him or love him, Gabor Mate, who I have to admit has done a lot of good work and is a very compassionate person, uh, but has also come into popular culture. He's a popular guy. I would say that almost everyone knows who Gabor Mate is. And so in popular culture, he also promotes the idea that a um, traumatic early environment is what causes uh, drug addiction. (laughs) And I think he's wrong. And I think, uh, like, I'm not saying he's wrong 100% of the time. And I'm not saying that a traumatic upbringing is great for anybody, but he's making facile connections his connections are too easy and actually they're not backed up by evidence he's using old evidence and um he's just making honestly i think he's he really wants to help he wants to find a solution he worked on the downtown east side for years he was probably traumatized by it i couldn't see how you wouldn't be um and i think he wants to find the source but i would say this the toxic drug crisis is not actually about addiction because the people who are dying, not all of them are addicted, whatever that is, right? There are first time users dying that are people who just, I don't know, use cocaine on the weekend every once in a while at a party. They are dying, right? Um, All sorts of people are dying. And so um, safe supply is about the preservation of life. It's not about the elimination of addiction. Right. And I think it's important to distinguish those things. And I would also say that, you know, of course, in a, you know, in a compassionate and civil society, we don't want people suffering with addiction. For sure, we don't. And it's important to look into, I don't know, causes and solutions for this. But we also need a more nuanced understanding of addiction because there are many, um, there are many um, experiences of addiction, just as there are many different types of people. And in our facile thinking, we've just come up with addict, right? And, and that person is, the it's a stereotype. And we're not going to get rid of addiction by thinking in those terms. We're not going to help people with a, whatever their addiction problems are by thinking in those easy simplistic terms people who are using drugs and people who have substance use disorders have many reasons and many causes and many and many solutions so the more we get interested in that the more we'll be able to help people yeah we as humans we want to simplify things don't we and we want like you mentioned earlier it could kind of an explanation and a reason when sometimes well most often it's more nuanced than that Yeah. And I mean, you know, the urgency of safe supply is the death rate right now. Right. Right. So like seven British Columbians are dying a day. And in other parts of North America, it's similar. Some places are higher, some places are lower, but it's unprecedented, the number of deaths. So basically safe supply is like, we're just throwing, you know, some water on the fire until we can find the source of the flame, right? We're just saying, let's give people some time. Let's stop them from dying. And then we can work on the other stuff because you can't send dead people to treatment. (laughs) It just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Well, and it sounds like from what you're saying, you know, dealing with, for example, like how we treat addiction can be 
dealt with concurrently with like providing a safe supply, right? Like those two things don't have to be one or the other. No, they're not mutually exclusive. And the problem right now in the politics, especially in Canada, is that certain politicians are making this a divisive issue. They're saying, you know, either or, you know, so some people are on the treatment bandwagon and they're saying safe supply is killing people but of course people who are most I would say almost all I think I can safely say that all proponents of safe supply say treatment is a part of that it's it's not mutually exclusive it's it's both Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tafosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tafosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tafosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match. And then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance. 
whole 15% off. And the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. Has running helped you deal with grief and how, and if so, how? Yeah. Oh, for sure it has. I mean, running is just so, um, well, I'm out in nature, you know, like right now I'm running across BC and I'm running in this beautiful place and I'm running along the side of the highway and sometimes on the KVR and um, it just allows me time to, th- to think. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I yell. Sometimes I sing. Um, and it just, it's some kind of grief processing for me. And I think also there's something, um, you know, at one point I had a, a few concerns of like, am I being narcissistic by, you know, turning my grief into this kind of public spectacle? <laughs> and I think there's, there's always that there's always that possibility in any time you go public about anything, but I think actually um, being seen and being heard and being witnessed is an important part of grieving. Um, And it is important part of being a human, right? Just seeing that other people see my experience as well. I have so many people, so many mothers, so many family members who come up to me and say, my nephew died. You know, mm-hmm. my daughter died, my husband died. And and they're saying to me, yeah, we want you to run because it's, you know, that's our experience and we want our experience heard. We don't want the death of our loved one to just, you know, disappear in time. We want that that person to be significant and their, their loss uh, recognized. So that's compelling, you know, and that, that 
that for sure urges me to keep going. Yeah. And your current project, you're doing 30 kilometers a, kilometers a day now. Is it from Nelson back to Victoria? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah it is. Nice. Yeah. So we started in Nelson because that's where my son lived and that's where he, that's where he was born. And that's the small town in which he died. And I really wanted to run through a lot of these small towns uh, because they lack resources. You know, there's no, well, I'm in Midway. There's no hospital here. There's no, uh, there's no pharmacy here. Well, maybe there's pharmacy, but anyway, you probably can't get methadone here. You know, a lot of the services that can help people, um, just medical services in particular, are, are absent in small communities in British Columbia. I will say, however, there are a lot of very excellent grassroots harm reduction um, agencies and organizations uh, in the small towns, and they're coming up out of necessity, and they're just... All of them are volunteers, or most of them are volunteers. I've met just amazing people who are just working for free, basically, to try and save people's lives. And I think it's important to promote their work, um, because I do believe eventually we're going to turn the tide. And people are, are going to see that prohibition and just say no and the war on drugs are outdated and useless approaches and are the actually the approaches that got us to where we are now that got us to where the black market is so lucrative and so powerful that we can do nothing about it and uh you said earlier um when the man came over to to talk to you you said you've had a bit of a mixed reception out there oh yeah what is like what does that look like well actually we've had mostly positive reception although we were in greenwood yesterday small little town you know maybe a thousand people and um we set up uh we had the bus is like decorated with you know decals and it says nelson to victoria on the front and it says aubrey's run across bc and toxic drug death and i had set up my little table with naloxone kits and pamphlets and so on and so forth on the sidewalk kind of down the street from the the coffee shop and i saw the owner shop come out you know wiping her hands on her apron and approaching me like who the hell are you you know oh, and so i yeah <laughs> So I talked to her. It's the way she was wiping her hands. You could just, you just knew. (laughs) I knew that the burning, you know, torches and pitchforks were were coming. Right. (laughs) I was like, uh oh. And uh, she she said, So what are you doing here? And I explained, Well, I'm running across BC to bring awareness about toxic drug death. I didn't say anything about safe supply yet. You know, I wanted to move in there slowly. And I, I said, My son had died. And and she said, oh, yes, her, her favorite long-term sus- customer's son had died. And we said, yes, isn't that terrible? And she said, yes. And then I said, can I give you a naloxone kit for your restaurant? And she said, oh, no. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was handing her a shitty piece of toilet paper or something, you know, like she just looked so, it's like I was handing her some heroin or something. Right. I didn't really understand. And she just walked away from me. And I I felt so well humiliated almost, you know, but, but angry as well. Like, why would you not want something that could save someone's life? What, what, what is this, you know? And I think she just, 
you know, someone else stopped and said, well, you know, they've got problems like that in Grand Forks, <laughs> which is the next little town, you know, well, tiny, tiny bit bigger. Blame like, the next town on, over. Yeah. <laughs> blame it on the, the slightly bigger town. Like right. we don't have those problems right. here, not in Greenwood, <laughs> but in Grand but in Forks. Grand Forks. <laughs> Whoa, that's awful. You should go to Grand Forks. You know, I was like, guys, you know, meanwhile, I'm sure there's deaths. Yes, that, there mm -hmm. are deaths in that community. Well, she said that there were. So, yeah, so we do get some mixed reception and people will continue to say, oh, we don't have that problem. But I, I think it's it's totally untrue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, how can we follow you and how can we get involved? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, don't take my word for anything, you know go and go and do your own research right like be be smart and be feisty you know uh dig into this stuff go to the um bc coroner's uh reports go to the bc center for disease control or if you're not in british columbia your own state or, or province will should have these kind of resources and, and look at the data um and then um you you can also go to mom stop the harm which is a, a national organization that supports families uh, with uh, loved ones with substance use disorder or who have, who have died uh, from, from toxic drugs. They have excellent resources. And you can also follow my journey on Instagram, Marathon for Safe Supply, and Facebook, Marathon a Day for Safe Supply. Um, I, I try and give updates where I have self-service and... Uh, yeah, I encourage people to um, to get involved. I mean, first of all, um, if you don't have uh, a drug problem in your family, great. That's that's wonderful. You know, it because it's it's true. Not everyone has this problem, and people may be likely to say, "Well, we don't have this problem in my family," so you know, good luck to you. But you know, then I would also say, it. You know, if we could have the same approach that we had during COVID. Right. So I went and got uh, vaccinated and I didn't travel and I wore my mask, not because I was afraid of getting COVID, you know, as a youngish, healthy non-smoker. I, I wasn't particularly worried about getting COVID. I, I did that to help other vulnerable people. Right. So I would urge people to have the same conception of this uh, health crisis. You know, it takes us all participating in this. Uh, to to save the lives and, and stop the deaths and secondly you don't know that your family doesn't have this problem because people do drugs all around us and we don't know it not everyone looks like a drug addict right so my son had been doing drugs probably for a lot of years before I saw him look like a drug addict right so there are people all around us who you know do a little bit of heroin on the weekend or cocaine on the weekend or or drink beer you know, which is, which is actually, uh, which is actually a drug, but is regulated. Right. Um, sorry, I'm going on and on here, but, you know, dig into this issue and, um, get involved and, and, and follow me. And this touches a lot of people. Yeah, it does. And from a, a I, I'm wondering about the physical performance point of view, you said earlier that you, googled like how to run a marathon a day there's not much like do you have advice for other people who would be 
might be interested in taking either taking on a challenge like that or doing sort of a change making drive like you have? Yeah. Well, actually, I am getting coaching right now. Janet Nielsen with Pinnacle Coaching is coaching me. Yeah. And so interestingly, my training leading up to this run, well, first of all, I did a lot of walking because I may end up doing some walking, right? And actually, you know, there's no use running up a uh, 23-kilometer hill. That's just not not helping anybody. (laughs) It's just burning myself out. Um, So her training helped me because if I had trained myself, I probably would have been running 150 kilometers a week and I'd be injured before I even started. So I think getting some guidance um, from someone who has some experience in, you know, either ultra events or reoccurring events, whatever those things are called, is a good idea. Um, I think the other thing, if you know, if somebody's looking to do this right now, I am being really super conscious of my body and how it's doing and um because injury could stop this whole thing really quickly so you know yesterday I actually took a shorter day because I could feel just this niggling in my Achilles I was like no 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 because you know as we all know once you have Achilles you cannot go back in time right like yeah it's it's a one-way street to four weeks off from, from running. So I, you know, I did nine kilometers yesterday instead of my 30 and I soaked my foot in a river and, and I feel good today. So I'm going to, you know, I mean, the point is to finish this thing. The point is to reach people. It's not, this is not a Guinness world book of records events, right? So it's keeping my body healthy, eating a ton of healthy food, um, you know, and having good emotional support, I think is really important. My brother and my partner are following me in the bus and, you know, having that team is crucial. I mean, I'd be out here pushing a baby stroller of camping stuff and I don't think that would have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Doing that on your own would have been crazy. Yeah. I thought about it. (laughs) For sure. I thought about Um, it. Do you have like a recovery routine? Like when you finish your run every day, do you do like ice like an ice bath or something like that? Well, I've been trying to, you know, where there's streams and rivers around here, um, you know, put my feet in there. Um, And also I brought my yoga mat with me and I just try and get down on the ground and sit on the tops of my feet and do some stretches and just, yeah. And I change shoes every day, uh, sometimes twice a day. I brought like five pairs of shoes with me and I rotate them, making sure to never wear the same shoes more than once. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually front runners in Victoria was really kind and gave me three pairs of, you know, very nice shoes. So, so that's, that's helped a lot. Yeah. That's amazing. As, go ahead. And I, you know, I just wanted to say one more thing about, yeah. the, about, you know, about mother blaming. And I think that, um, you know, being feisty is, uh, I know you're coming from the same place as my philosophy around avoiding this mother blaming thing, because the, the whole idea of the bad enough mother is that when we are too good, mm-hmm. when we follow society's expectations of us, you know, to, to, uh, to be wealthy and to be, uh, thin and to be, um, I don't know, have children that all go through university and are, you know, 
we just reinscribe all the kind of forces upon us that oppress us. So actually when we stand up and are openly queer or are openly disabled or are openly whatever vulnerability or speciality that we have that is that is not the status quo when we stand up proud and strong about those things we teach our children how to talk back to a society that names them before they're even born right that names them as poor that names them as you know the uh, an addict's daughter or names them as gay or whatever it is right all those labels that get put upon us and that we end up um playing out so when we stand up and we're bad and we're feisty then we we teach others how to do the same thing so i you know i'm hoping to do that in in this run a little bit just you know to be bad to be uh to suffer a little bit and to be openly vulnerable and fragile and, and just myself. And, you know, I did not cause my son to die. And let me tell you, I have to tell myself that every yeah. day, mm-hmm. every like 40 times a day, because my mind will go through, oh, if I had just done this, or maybe I shouldn't have dated when he was in elementary school, or maybe I shouldn't have you know, instead of training for triathlons, I should have taken him away or I should have this or that. You know, it's endless. The blame that I can heap upon myself, it's really toxic, actually. And it doesn't help. And it's not true. You know, uh, Aubrey died because the drug, because he couldn't ever know how much of a drug he was taking. You know, um, it's not that he chose to take too much. Uh, so yeah, be bad. Be yeah, I love everything that you just said. And I also, I sort of definitely ascribe to the parenting methodology that like our kids learn more from what we do, what they see us do than anything that we tell them to do. Um, so I, I believe that if they see us um, able to be ourselves in the world, then they will be able, they have a better chance of being able to be their authentic selves as well. Yeah, exactly. And and if if you are suffering, you know, with with a substance use disorder or you have a kid using substance use disorder, society is brutal. You know, our culture is brutal upon our kids, upon us as parents, and it takes an extra special dose of feistiness to resist that and to not be ashamed of our loved ones and not to be not to blame ourselves. So you know, that's another reason for this run. This run is is for the people who this is affecting to say, you know, let's stand up proud and, and proud and strong and, and resist all those stereotypes and just, um, you know, show some support and some compassion. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, I can see that you have an extra dose of feistiness. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for showing us what that looks like yeah, um, and you. for everything that you're doing to make change. Really appreciate you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Looks like you have a great day ahead of you. Yeah, it's gorgeous here. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. 
brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. 